Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's Monday, January 9th, and you can finally call him Speaker McCarthy. We start here. That was easy, huh? After a chaotic weekend, the Kevin McCarthy era begins in Washington. He's entering leadership definitely in a weaker position because of how much he had to give up. We'll take you inside the 28 minutes that could shape his legacy and ask what's next. Jair Bolsonaro didn't inspire a January 6th. His supporters waited a couple days later. This is like protesters getting into the West Wing. I mean, that is that is just unbelievable. Brazilian insurrectionists have broken into the Capitol building, and they didn't stop there. And police have been profiling school shooters for years, but none of those shooters were six years old. Opens fire deliberately, police said on a teacher. How a shooting in Virginia is making authorities rethink laws about parents and guns. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. For the last hundred years, selecting a Speaker of the House has been more or less a formality. Right before the big vote in Congress, the party in charge irons out ahead of time who's going to lead them. There have been a few times when it's taken more than one vote to decide. Most recently, it was 1923, and before that, in the lead-up to the Civil War. But in 160 years, it had never taken more than 10 ballots to determine the speakership. The Republicans have created a mess on their side and the Republicans need to sort it out. Well, on Friday night, GOP lawmakers were waiting on their 14th ballot. They were despondent. After 15 votes, though... Now I want to see you write that I actually won, okay? (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, we've got a Speaker of the House, and his name is Kevin McCarthy. ABC's congressional correspondent Rachel Scott starts us off this week. Rachel, some people thought you'd be starting your week exactly the same as you started last week, like (laughs) uh, anticipating more votes. What changed on Friday? Well, Brad, I got to tell you, this was quite a season finale. Uh, This was dramatic. I was inside the chamber for the 28 minutes that decided it all. We made some very good progress. Uh, We'll come back tonight. I believe at that time we'll have the votes. McCarthy was very confident heading into Friday night that he was going to have the speaker's gavel, that he was going to win. The reading clerk will call the roll. But he came up one vote short. Gates. Present. So cameras were catching all of this happening, this dramatic standoff between Kevin McCarthy and Matt Gates. McCarthy goes over, he confronts Gates, fingers are pointing, words are being exchanged. And then moments later, you had Mike Rogers, who's the top Republican of the Armed Services Committee. He was physically restrained from going after Gates. I mean, he was trying to get in his face. Wait, like this was like an, an almost brawl on the floor. Near blows. They almost came to wow. near blows. And Brad, part of the reason why this was so tense is because McCarthy's team really told everyone that they had it in the bag. I mean, they had members who were sick, 
come back into the chamber. Congressman Ken Buck's got to come back. Congressman-elect Wesley Hunt has also got to come back. They've both got to get rushed here to the House by 10 o'clock. Another member who just had a baby who was suffering from complications traveled back in to wrap up this business. And so when Matt Gates voted present, Jaws were dropped. People were absolutely shocked. So you can see uh, Matt Gates, who's normally a pretty, uh, uh, pretty smiley fellow. They're just absolutely stone faced with Lauren Boebert. The pressure that they're getting from colleagues right now. So over the course of 28 minutes, a lot of haggling is going on, tense negotiations. And then with all this drama unfolding, Donald Trump steps in. He really was. I was just talking to him tonight. Um, Helping get those final votes. He starts calling all of the Republican holdouts. You have this mm. image of Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. She spotted trying to pass her phone to other members on the House floor. And the caller's name reads DT. So obviously. You can see that when the lens zoomed in. You can see it. You can see it from across the floor. It says DT. It's obviously former President Donald Trump on the line. Some oh. Republicans are blowing it off. Others are talking to him. Will, will the gentleman repeat his motion? I move the House do now adjourn until noon Monday. And then suddenly you have this midnight breakthrough. He's voting no. It looks like McCarthy's telling everyone to vote no with that red card to adjourn, which means maybe he and Matt Gates just uh, came to some sort of agreement. Maybe Republicans that- start shouting one more time. They keep the House floor open for another vote. Kevin McCarthy is able to win enough support on the 15th ballot. That was easy, huh? Finally becoming the next Speaker of the House. Well, and again, I think it speaks to kind of what you were saying of like, this roller coaster of emotions that the lawmakers were on. Like they think they have it. They're making huge sacrifices, family sacrifices to be there. And then it's not happening. And that makes them like, like physically angry with each other. But here we are then, Rachel. It's no longer... Congressman McCarthy. It's no longer Minority Leader McCarthy. He is now on this pretty short list of this country's most powerful lawmakers. Like he's second in line to the Oval after the vice president now. What is a Speaker McCarthy era going to look like in Congress? Well, he gave a brief introduction to the American people as soon as he got that speaker's gavel. You voted for a new direction for our country. You embraced our commitment to America. And now we're going to keep our commitment to you. He promised not only to represent, you know, Republicans, but to represent all of America. But he made it very clear he sees this as being a very important check to the Biden administration. Our system is built on checks and balances. It's time for us to be a check and provide some balance to the president's policies. That check and balance of the Biden administration from everything from uh, subpoenas to investigations. Um, And they're not going to waste any time moving forward with that. We will hold the swamp accountable from the withdrawal of Afghanistan to the origins of COVID and to the weaponization of the FBI. But Brad, you also mentioned it. I mean, look, this was a once in a century fight. We have not seen a speaker's contest this contentious this long since before the Civil War. The American people understandably after the events of this week, recognize that the Congress is at a fork in the road. And so usually this is one of the easiest things for leaders uh, when they get elected. The speakers vote, maybe not all your party votes for you, but it's typically one of the easiest votes before members get sworn in. I mean, this dragged out. And so that's also a sign of some of the challenges that are to come for Kevin McCarthy. 
you only earn the position of Speaker of the House if you can get the votes. Mr. McCarthy doesn't have the votes today. He will not have the votes tomorrow. And he will not have the votes next week, next month, next year. Did we also learn that these holdouts weren't necessarily as strong as they thought they were? Like, Matt Gates was saying he'd rather be waterboarded than let McCarthy become speaker, but then he let it happen. Like, they can pretend otherwise. They can say, well, we actually abstained from the vote. Like, they could have stopped this, and they didn't. Matt Gates called Kevin McCarthy a squatter because he had moved into the speaker's office mm. just days before this vote and days before all of this played out. And then in the end, it was Matt Gates that helped McCarthy clench the speaker's gavel. So... Yes, on one hand, there's so much talk about McCarthy being a weaker speaker. He's entering leadership definitely in a weaker position because of how much he had to give up in order to get that speaker's gavel. He'll make it actually easier to remove the Speaker of the House by allowing a single lawmaker to try and force a vote to vacate the seat. He's also uh, promised some bills on border security, on term limits, and he's also promised to give some of those hard right conservatives more power on committees. But then on the other hand, Brad, McCarthy is a survivor in this fight and a very historic battle. And in the end, even though he had to cave, so did the hard right conservatives. Well, so now we get to the fun part, right? Like, (laughs) I guess, which is (laughs) governing, you know, legislation with a Democratic Senate, with a Republican House. We'll see what happens. We'll see what actually gets passed. Rachel Scott, thank you. Thanks, Brad. Next up on Start Here, a big crowd intent on overthrowing the government approaching the Capitol. Sound familiar? A Brazilian insurrection after the break. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more, or I'd read a book, or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. With daylight saving time upon us, we're looking forward to more daylight and longer days from March through November. And while setting our clocks forward gives us the illusion of more time, it doesn't necessarily help businesses find qualified candidates any sooner. Fear not, there is a solution. ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter is your 24-7 hiring partner working tirelessly to connect you with the right candidate. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, it gets distributed to over 100 job sites, ensuring you reach a diverse pool of qualified individuals. Their smart technology scans thousands of resumes, matching you with people whose skills perfectly align with your job requirements. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a Quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash start here. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash start here. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. 
They need a lot of resources, and we're going to get them for them. Yesterday, for the first time in his nearly two years in office, President Biden made a trip to the border in Texas to witness firsthand the alarming situation as migrants enter in high numbers. You have all, all these folks here now that don't know what to do. Or- and uh, so it's a real it's a real drastic situation. They've actually slowed significantly since just a few weeks ago when there were nearly 2,500 people a day being apprehended by Border Patrol. Now it's down to 700 a day. But even that's having huge effects on border towns like El Paso, Texas. The president who caused the chaos of the border needed to be here. It just so happens he's two years at about $20 billion too late. And while Biden was touting stiff new rules that will send tens of thousands of people out of the country, Texas Governor Greg Abbott openly chided Biden after meeting with him on the tarmac, accusing him of creating a situation in which more people are fleeing Central and South America and coming here. Meanwhile, though, in South America, a full-fledged disaster was taking place. In recent months, there have been striking similarities in the rhetoric of former Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro and former American President Donald Trump. Both lost their elections, both refused to accept that, alleging fraud with zero evidence, and both have whipped supporters into frenzies, telling them they need to take their country back. Together we are fighting to reclaim our republic from a failed and corrupt political establishment. The big difference had been that after Brazil's election this past November, they haven't had a January 6th type moment. Well, that changed yesterday. As thousands of Bolsonaro supporters gathered outside Brazil's most hallowed governmental buildings and forced their way in. ABC's foreign correspondent Matt Rivers covers Latin America. Matt, what is happening in the capital of Brasilia right now? Yeah, this is some pretty striking imagery uh, that we saw yesterday uh, during the day going into the evening uh, where we saw thousands of Bolsonaro supporters showing up uh, at at an area where the Brazilian Supreme Court is, the Brazilian presidential offices, which we should note is different than the presidential residence, and also Congress. And they forced their way into all three of these institutions in what really looked a lot like January 6th. You saw tear gas being fired by riot police. We saw one very striking video of a police officer mounted on horseback who was basically dragged off the horse and beaten uh, by different protesters there. So very, very intense scenes. Completely outnumbered, uh, getting beat back. Uh, There were some police officers injured uh, in all of this. And you saw Bolsonaro supporters go into these buildings and trash the place. I mean, bringing uh, lots of destruction inside, vandalizing things, graffiti, broken windows. All these people driven by this idea that the uh, presidential election that we covered back in October, and we were on your show covering that, they're driven by the idea that the results of that election, which was a close election that saw President Lula da Silva win, that those results are illegitimate because Bolsonaro uh, believes that there was fraud. Wow. And much of the footage we just heard there uh, was from people who were there on the ground, including this reporter named George Marquez. He actually gave us permission to use these recordings there. But as I was watching this as an American, Matt, it was very difficult not to draw all these parallels to January 6th. I'm wondering, though, like, was that intentional on the part of the attackers? Like, like, why why were they there in the first place? I mean, they were there for there's been ongoing protests now in Brazil for for the last couple of months since this 
uh, election happened. You've had Bolsonaro supporters, in many cases outside military bases, protesting the military, calling for a military intervention. The goal of Sunday's protest by the people who were there saying, we are demanding Lula leave office because we believe he is an illegitimate president. He was only inaugurated one week ago. So this was really their first chance. Sunday is often a big day for protests in Brazil. And so this was their first chance to say, hey, you are not a legitimate president. You need to leave. But this all goes back to Jair Bolsonaro laying the groundwork for years. I mean, and the reason why this all sounds so similar is because it is similar to what you heard. Remember, President Trump in the lead up to the 2020 election, he started sowing the groundwork for uh, distrust in the election systems in the United States well before election day. A conservative community, they don't happen to send the ballots to those communities. And there's no way of checking. No, you have to go and you have to vote. Bolsonaro did it even longer than that. He's got a history going back years questioning Brazil's voting systems without ever really providing any proof. And so it's really not a surprise that he hasn't respected the results of this election. And his supporters, I talked to some of them back in October who said to me, if Bolsonaro doesn't win, it's because it's fraud. And I said, well, what about any proof of that? And they go, well, we don't really need a lot of proof. Bolsonaro says this is what it is. This is what it is. In the U.S., there were questions about like the National Guard and why more backup wasn't called. But the police on hand, like Capitol Police, were seen as heroes that were protecting the Capitol at great cost to themselves. But then last night, Brazil's current president, Lula, gives an address. And, and to hear him, I mean, he didn't sound like, like he trusted the police had his government's best interests at heart. Not at all. And, you know, what we know is that there is and, and was and will continue to be a lot of support for Jair Bolsonaro within Brazilian law enforcement, within the Brazilian military, within Brazil's security apparatuses. I think there's going to be a lot more investigative reporting about how this happened, how this was allowed to happen. We don't know exactly how all of these people were so easily able to get into these government buildings. But what is clear is that the police presence was not robust enough, even though this was a protest that was planned in advance. You know, they knew this was coming in some respects. Clearly, they were not uh, ready for that. And, and we're in a post-January 6th world, Matt. Like, you'd think they would have seen this. A hundred percent. And you would think, okay, like, there's a lot of similarities. If this could happen in the United States, why can't it happen here? And yet, you did not see the police being ready for this. What you're hearing from the Brazilian president currently, some conspiratorial vibes from him. He's basically saying that he believes the police let this happen on purpose. We, of course, can't confirm that ourselves. But what is very clear is that there was not enough police there. And these people got into these very important buildings. This, this is Congress. This is essentially the White House. I mean, the, the Brazilian president doesn't live there, but he works there. So this is like protesters getting into the West Wing. I wow. mean, that is that is just unbelievable. And so clearly the police were not ready for this. And you can see in the video, I mean, the police were clearly outmatched. Some were in riot gear, but they were retreating uh, and they were actually being thrown tear gas at protesters picking up tear gas that were thrown and throwing it right back at the police. So clearly there needs to be a lot of investigation into how this was allowed to happen. Right. Wild scenes there. And, and again, just strikingly similar scenes to what we've seen. Uh, Matt Rivers, thank you so much. Thank you. Basically around two o'clock, what we had is a call of a shooting inside the school. Uh, we have a, an, an, an adult that has uh, suffered a gunshot wound. It ended in a sadly familiar scene. Children huddled under desks after gunshots, police scrambling to respond, and a teacher wheeled out after being shot by a student. The difference between this scene in Virginia on Friday, though, and so many other school shootings in this country 
was that the student here, who police say opened fire, was six years old. ABC's senior investigative reporter Aaron Katursky has been reporting on this throughout the weekend as Virginia officials grapple with the aftermath. Because, Aaron, we've heard about children with guns before, but usually it's, you know, very accidental. They're sort of playing with it and it goes off. Police said this was not the case here. Police said this was not an accidental shooting, Brad. And in a country inured to gun violence the way the United States seemingly has become, what happened at Richneck Elementary School in Newport News, Virginia, really was truly stunning because a six-year-old boy somehow gets a gun, brings it into a first-grade classroom, and then opens fire deliberately, police said, on a teacher. My heart stopped. Um, I was freaking out, very nervous, just wondering, was that one person my son? And thank goodness students were able to scatter and there was not more damage done. This teacher is being credited for telling kids to get out of the way. But can you imagine a boy in first grade pulling the trigger of a handgun that he brought to school and purposefully shooting his teacher, who was for a time in critical condition? She has since stabilized. How do authorities think he got access to this gun? Police have not said how the gun wound up in the hands of a child. There's some questions we'll want to ask and, and find out about. I want to know where that firearm came from, what, what was the situation. But, but right now, what I've shared with you is kind of where we're at. And they are still trying to figure out, I think, the circumstances there. Talk about the gun a little bit. What kind of a gun? No, I don't, I don't want to get into that until I've let, allowed, the, allowed the detectives to do their... I can tell you it was a handgun, it was a firearm. They've been looking into disciplinary history to see if this was a troubled child. The individual is a, a six-year-old uh, student. Uh, he is right now in police custody as we're working... But they haven't the said anything publicly about where the, the kid got the gun and why he may have done this, and really even, Brad, what to do, because the criminal justice system in our society is not built, doesn't even contemplate a six-year-old shooting somebody. Well, and, like, it's difficult to consider a six-year-old even a murderer when he probably doesn't know what he... Like, he, you know, police have said this is not an accident, but if that's true, like, I mean, do you punish the kid? Would you help the kid? Would you treat the kid? Like, what would you do? Police haven't said what they're going to do. They haven't identified the child publicly. Virginia does not have a very strong law requiring firearms to be locked up the way other states, say Massachusetts, does. And there have been a number of states pushing not only for stricter laws about keeping firearms in the home, but actually holding parents accountable if a child uses an unsecured gun in the commission of a crime. Disheartened. And, uh, and I really feel that we, we need to um, educate our children and we need to keep them safe. That a six-year-old was even able to access a gun and, and bring it to school and seemingly know how to fire it, the superintendent in Newport News called a breakdown in values. So today, there was, was really a breakdown in what, what our values are as a community. And so while the school tries to figure out how to respond to these and, and how to keep this from happening again. And they look into the disciplinary history. There's no school Monday or Tuesday at Richneck Elementary School. The, the, the overarching theme that we've heard from the superintendent and from other school officials is just keeping guns away from kids in the first place. Wow. A tragic story here unfolding. All right. Aaron Katursky, thank you so much. Thank you, Brad. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, it's not a cure for Alzheimer's, but it's closer than anything we've ever had before. One last thing is next. 
Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. And one last thing. There aren't many diseases that can take a bigger, more silent toll on a family than Alzheimer's disease. At this moment, six million Americans have Alzheimer's. That number is expected to double within a few decades. And the reason I call it a family disease is because Alzheimer's patients are overwhelmingly looked after by their family members. They bear most of the financial cost, the emotional toll, particularly in black and Latino families where the disease is even more prevalent than it is for white people, which is why it's so momentous right now that the FDA has approved a new drug to treat Alzheimer's. This is a big deal. This is an FDA-approved drug, and it is the first of its kind to show with clear evidence that it can slow cognitive decline in people with early Alzheimer's. Now, it's Sony Salzman from ABC's medical unit who says this drug, called Lakembi, will be available to people later this month. This isn't a cure. It's not going to reverse memory loss, but effectively what the drug does is it it buys you a little bit more time so you, you, you're cognitive decline is, is slower than it would have been had you not taken it. It'll mainly be prescribed to people who have just been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, meaning it's meant to preserve brain function. And she's spoken to people who have taken this medication. Uh, my name is Jerry Fair. And I'm Deb Fair. Jerry and Debbie, okay? Like, such a beautiful couple. They, um, Jerry was part of the clinical trial. He has early stage Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, what he told me is that he, again, he would do anything just for a little bit more time with his wife. I would, I'm taking this drug so I can still remember and be with Deb. What's kind of tricky about this, though, is because it slows the disease rather than reversing it, patients like Jerry might not actually experience a difference. That's the whole point. The way that it works is it removes, you know, washes away, helps wash away some of these sticky plaques that form in our brain. Because of that, some thought this might be a tough sell, especially since Lakembi can carry significant risks, like brain swelling and small brain bleeds. And because this is an accelerated approval, it might not be covered by your insurance and therefore cost $26,000. There's also the fact that the FDA has been pilloried by some healthcare advocates for its approval of another Alzheimer's drug a couple years ago when results weren't nearly as positive. It was very, very controversial because unlike this drug we're talking about right now, there was actually very mixed evidence showing whether or not it made a difference in your life. And and that created a very controversial approval because the, there was such a dire need, the FDA did decide to approve it, but, you know, questionable, right? Especially since it did have some similar side effects. Now, this drug, we do have good evidence in people. There was a clinical trial, people who got placebo versus people who got, you know, this drug. It was well-designed and it did show a 27% difference. So 27% less cognitive decline. So that is a significant finding. So that's the big deal here. Whether patients are easily noticing differences or not, in a country with millions upon millions of cases, 27% improvement 
treatment can change lives. And hopefully, doctors say, it puts us one step closer to a cure. One thing I found so interesting about Alzheimer's, this is from the National Institute of Health, is that again, so many family members become the caretakers for Alzheimer's patients. The most common person to do that caretaking is someone they call a sandwich generation, meaning you're taking care of your mom or your dad, but you've also got kids around. So the level of burnout can just be debilitating. So consider this a shout out to everyone here who's looked after a family member with dementia or Alzheimer's. More on all these stories at abcnews.com, including more info about this drug. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow.